You are listening to the Murray Hills Church Podcast. To learn more about Murray Hills Church, including our gathering times, and how to connect with us, visit us online at murrayhills.com. I want to, before we get in the message, I want to share a story with you real quick. And I, I wasn't planning on sharing this story in a message because it, it was on social media last week. But I realized um, Wednesday or Thursday, like, not everybody does social media. And not everybody who does social media follows me. And I realized it when I emailed Jim, our treasurer, and said, hey, I need an $8,000 check for Crossroads to Home for the Venmo thing. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, we've been raising money. And he's like, what, when? When did you announce that? And, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, not everybody's on social media. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we met with representatives from Crossroads to Home. And that's the homeless ministry in town, the new homeless ministry in town. And our elders had met with them because our elders are meeting with different nonprofits in town trying to determine, like, what's the future of Murray Hills? Like, what, what big ministry are we going to invest in? with our time and our resources because we're a debt-free church now and that really changes the game for us. And so like we're, we're prayerfully considering and exploring all the opportunities in front of us of how do we redirect the resources we were putting into funding this place into, into ministry in this community. And so we were meeting with Crossroads to Home and we knew this, but they, we were reminded of it that there's no emergency homeless shelter in Columbia. So, it, you know, when the temperature get, dips into the teens or there's any kind of severe weather event, there's no place for people to go uh, in our city. And we were talking about that, and I was like, well, what, what happens when that happens, when the, when the weather gets really bad? What happens? And they're like, well, we just try to get hotel rooms for people. And it's like, well, what, you know, how much of your budget do you use for that? And they said, well, we don't really have it. It's not really part of our budget. We just have to do it because we don't know when the need is going to rise, and we just try to get hotel rooms. Like, well, how much did you spend on it last year? And they're like, well, we spent about 12000 on it last year. Their budget's 80000 Spent about 12000 on it. And we were just thinking, like, brainstorming together. Like, there's got to be some way that churches could take care of that. Like, there's got to be, like, if every church in town just said, hey, we'll take five rooms, like, you can count on it. Anytime the weather gets to a certain temperature, Murray Hills has five rooms for you. And then if Grace did that and First Baptist did that, and other, you know, like we could just get all the churches together. And we're still going to explore that option. But before we could get to that point, we had that cold snap last weekend. And so I just threw something out on my story on Instagram and Facebook about, hey, can you imagine sleeping in your car when the weather's like this? They've got a deal with Richland Inn. It's 60 bucks. They normally, I think the last time we had a big cold snap, they needed 40 to 50 rooms. Do you think we could maybe cover 40 to 50 rooms if everybody just pitch in $60? I think we could make it happen. And in about 24 hours, we covered 135 rooms for Crossroads to Home. So, yeah. And it, it, it wasn't just this church. That was what was so cool about it. I would say half the donations just came from people in the community. And we were getting donations for people that were out of state that just saw it. And they said, hey, we'll help out our friends. And um, it was over 100 families gave. And so I, on Monday morning, we mailed an $8,000 check to Crossroads to Home. And some people gave directly through their PayPal account. So, uh I love doing stuff like that. I mean, I love, I'm glad you applauded it because I think that's what the church ought to be doing. I think those are the needs that we ought to be meeting, and I love getting to do that. To me, that is fun, and I think generosity is fun when you do it in the right way. And the reason we're able to do that is, well, one, we're debt-free, so that, that, there's a whole lot of more freedom that comes with being debt-free. But also, our regular giving Sunday, every Sunday is good. 
And that allows our leadership to be more flexible and fun when it comes to special projects like this. Because there's a lot of leaderships that would go, oh, we can't do $8,000. Goodness, that's going to take it out of Sunday. And then how are we going to meet budget and all that kind of stuff? But like, we're meeting budget. So we can have fun with some special Sundays like that. And I actually didn't even ask their permission to do that. I just put it out on Instagram and Facebook. And, uh, and we roll with it. But they were just as excited about it as you guys are. So um, I mentioned all that to say... Let's take up our offering. Uh, it's a, a good reminder that we do have to do this every Sunday. We have to mention it every Sunday. Uh, and you can give electronically. All the information's on the screen. You guys know how to do it, and, and you do it on a regular basis. So thank you. Thank you so much for your generosity. And I hope we get to do more fun stuff like that uh, in the future. Today we're going to start a new series called uh, A Tale of Five Cities. And this is what I'm calling an, an in-between series. And what, like I always try to do two big series to start the year off. So we did the emotional health series. It just wrapped up last Sunday. And I'm kicking off a series, actually the Sunday after Easter. So Easter is going to be all about the resurrection. And then the Sunday after Easter, I'm kicking off a series called The Afterlife. What happens when we die? I think it's the most important and the most avoided question. Like, what, what happens? What when we die, what happens? Where do we go? Uh, what's heaven like? What's hell like? Is there a hell? Is there a heaven? We're going we're gonna to be digging in the scriptures and, and looking at all of that on the, after Easter. I've got a stack of books on my desk right now, like that big, trying to, to study and prep. I just blew my budget at Amazon recently, trying to get you know, prep for this big series. But in between, we're going to be talking about this one. And this one is very um, strategic in that we are moving into the Easter season. So our hearts, our minds are preparing for Easter Sunday. And this is intended to focus our thoughts and, uh, and our mind, our, our hearts, our, th- our thoughts and our hearts more on Jesus as we move into Easter. And it's a geography-based series. Aubrey Flagg's going to be in the second service. He's going to love this. He's a retired geography professor. Uh, Because what I'm doing is I'm taking five different cities that Jesus visited in his ministry. And in each city, he revealed just a little bit more of who he was. And each one builds on the other. So in Nazareth, Jesus revealed that he was the one the prophets were speaking of. And in, in Caesarea Philippi, he revealed that he was the Messiah. In Bethany, he revealed that he did have power over death. He raised his friend Lazarus, which was a precursor to what was coming uh, a few weeks later. In uh, Jerusalem, he revealed that he was the Savior, and he, taught, he revealed his purpose, the why he came to earth. And then in Emmaus, he revealed that he was the resurrected Savior. So those are the five cities that we're going to be looking at uh, together And each one of these, the whole intent is that we just kind of focus our thoughts more on Jesus as we move into this this Easter season. And so we're going to start in Luke 4 today. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to start in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. I'm going to open a Bible, but I'm going to try to drive my slides here on how we do it. Now, So the first city we're looking at is uh, Nazareth and if you look at that map behind the Tel Five cities, you can see it up in the upper right-hand corner of that graphic. So Nazareth is this kind of small backwater town in northern Israel. It's in Galilee. It's right in between the Sea of Galilee and uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And it's, I mean, even by today's standards, it's not a very big city. It's about 75,000 today. At the time of Jesus, it would have been a very 
small village. There was only one stream that provided all the fresh water for that village. I don't know what the population would have been, but it, it would have been a very tiny village, and it was not well thought of. Like we just get that indication because there's this story in one of the Gospels about Philip going to tell his friend uh, Nathaniel that he's found the Messiah, and he's all excited about it, and he's like, I found the Messiah, and Nathaniel kind of asks, like, where's he from? He's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel's reaction is like, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So it doesn't have a great reputation, and I, I tried to do a little research this week trying to figure out why, and uh, this was the best I could find in the, in the Bible dictionary. I looked it up, and it said Nazareth didn't have a great reputation because it was looked down on by other uh, people in Israel because of its, quote, unpolished dialect and lack of culture. I thought, oh, it's Hohenwald. Uh, cool. Uh, and that's, a, <laughs> that's not a rip on my hometown. That's my hometown. But that's the way everybody thinks of their hometown, isn't it? If you grew up in Columbia and you move up to Nashville and go to school or you go to Atlanta or whatever, you think, oh, yeah, the unpolished dialect of Columbia and it's uncultured. I mean, that's the way all of us think of our hometowns in that way. And so uh, that's the way people thought of Nazareth. But the cool thing is God chooses the unpolished and the uncultured to humble the mighty and the proud. And that's what he did in this tiny town of Nazareth. And Jesus spent most of his earthly life in this little tiny town of Nazareth. This, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about it. Because we, we talk about the last three to three and a half years of Jesus' life. That was his public ministry. But most of his time was spent in Nazareth. Most of his time he was a kid growing up in Nazareth. He was an adolescent growing up in Nazareth. And he was a, a carpenter. I mean, he just, just lived in an ordinary town, an ordinary village. And that's one of the reasons that they react the way they do. You read all these gospel stories about Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, and that's actually what this one is about. And you read all those, and we kind of are hard on the people of Nazareth, like, how could they reject Jesus? Well, he was the boy. I mean, that's Joseph's son. That's Mary's son. Well, I mean, you kind of understand it when you put it in perspective. And it's interesting to me that Jesus chose, in his early part of his ministry, he chose to reveal himself in Nazareth, in a synagogue where he possibly grew up. I mean, this is, this is probably Jesus maybe his entire life had grown up in this little synagogue. And that's what the story is about today as to where he starts to reveal part of his identity. So we're going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 14. And I'm going to read it slowly. So we're going to kind of go through this, this story line by line. Uh, because there's a whole lot to explain here. So Luke begins with uh, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, Spirit. And the question, of course, you read that and you go, well, where has he been? Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. In Luke's gospel, Jesus uh, was baptized and tested in the wilderness. And then he goes straight into the story that happened in Nazareth. Um, but a lot more happened in that time. So G Jesus had, had begun teaching in and around Galilee and he had begun performing miracles in and around Galilee. Luke doesn't talk about it in his gospel, but the other gospels do. So he had turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Cana is very close to Nazareth, so they would have surely heard about that story. Uh, he had healed a man at a synagogue in Capernaum. And Capernaum's real close to Nazareth, so they would have heard about that story. So people are hearing about Jesus. And now he's returned to his hometown. And that's exactly how Luke describes it. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit... And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues 
and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So we, we, we know that Jesus was starting to be well-known, probably because of the miracles, but also because of his teaching. We know that he was, as a visiting rabbi, was teaching in these different synagogues. And so we came to Nazareth, he was invited to do the same. Now, a couple of notes here about synagogues and rabbis. Uh, the synagogue is the central gathering place in the Jewish community. It was not just church. I mean, it was like the central gathering place. They worshipped there on the Sabbath, but it would have been where schooling took place uh, during the week. It would have been where they had assemblies and meetings and those kinds of things. As long as there were 10 Jewish families living in a village, they could establish a synagogue, and there was an attendant at every synagogue. And the attendant always invited the visiting rabbi to teach. If a rabbi was in town, the attendant would invite him to read scripture and teach. So Jesus, at this point, is recognized not just as a carpenter or not the carpenter's son. Jesus is recognized as a rabbi. And uh, so he's teaching in these different synagogues in and around Galilee. And now he's going to teach in his home synagogue, <clears throat> so to speak. And a rabbi is a word that simply means teacher. So Jesus is invited to teach, and this scripture is handed to him. We don't know if Jesus chose the scripture or if it was just the reading for the day. But it's a very significant passage of Scripture. It's Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. And it says, unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, <clears throat> to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I, I love that line. And I want you to visualize what's happening. Sitting down doesn't mean that he was done teaching. It meant that he was beginning to teach. So a rabbi would, they would stand for the reading of God's word, and then the rabbi would sit down and begin to teach. And so as G, that's why all the eyes are fastened on him, because the rabbi is now going to begin his message. And he begins his message by saying, what, you just, what I just read, I'm the fulfillment of that. And I think it had to be like the confusing opening line of a sermon that they had no idea what it meant. And I wish the rest of the sermon was there, because Luke doesn't give us the rest of the sermon. We have no idea. He just skips straight to the handshaking part at the end, like, hey, great job, Jesus. Uh, he doesn't say anything about what happened with the actual sermon. But we know, the reason that line sends chills down our spines is because we know what the rest of the story, we know what happened. We know where he went to Jerusalem. We know about the resurrection. Like we know, we got all the details. And so it's like, oh wow, that is such a powerful moment. But the folks in Nazareth might be going, okay, that, all right, that's a weird way to start a sermon. And, and it, I mean, because they, they had no context for what he's talking about. I like to think, this is just me visualizing things. I like to think that like at the time when he said that, they just looked at him like, what? Okay, and then he taught, and then like three and a half, four years later after the resurrection, they were going, oh, yeah, that's, that's what you meant. Oh, I had no idea. Because Jesus is slowly, and you see the story throughout his teaching, he's slowly revealing his identity. He doesn't come right out and say, I'm the Messiah. Now, we know with the hindsight of history, that's what he's saying. 
He is saying, I am the Messiah, because that is a messianic prophecy that he just read. And this is Jesus' way of kind of slowly revealing, I'm the Messiah. He won't do that fully until he gets to Caesarea Philippi. But, but I love the line uh, right there. And then it says, this is, so like, like I said, Luke skips over the teaching and goes right to the, the handshaking part. And he says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They ask. And I love that line too. Because, I mean, you just imagine. I mean, they, they've watched this guy grow up. And now, like, what? wow. I didn't, know, I didn't know he could teach like that. Wow. That's, he's been in the wrong business. Um, verse 23. It continues with, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Now, I, I realize I just misspoke. I said that Luke doesn't include any of the sermon. He actually does. This is at least part of the sermon that Jesus would have been given. And he says, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Because he, he healed a man at the synagogue in Capernaum. So people are finding out about him. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now, that means nothing to us today. Like when we read that, we're like... But, and this is why the Old Testament's important. If we know our Old Testaments, it's that this story is important. But Jesus is telling them a story about a time in which uh, Israel refused, well, Israel rebelled against God and rejected the messengers of God. So they rejected the prophets of God, Elisha and Elijah. And so God, instead of using Israel, he used non-Israelites to receive the covenant blessing. That's what he's talking about. In the time of Elijah, you rejected Elijah, and so he chose a widow from Sidon. That was a non-Israelite to receive the blessings that were supposed to be to Israel. And then in the time of Elisha, he chose to cleanse uh, a Syrian. It was a non-Israelite. And if you were uh, Jewish and you were in this audience, this would have been infuriating. What Jesus did in his message was insulted them because he's talking about a part of their history that they don't want to talk about. People, that still happens today, by the way. If you talk about parts of history that people don't want to talk about, they get infuriated. Um, and so they were infuriated about this, and that's exactly what happens. It says in verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And I love this part. I'm like, this is just a reminder to all preachers uh, that, you know, they may love the beginning of the sermon, but by the end of the sermon, they may be ready to crucify you. So they may love what you say 52 Sundays out of the year, but you say one bad thing and you're going to get thrown off the cliff. And that's what happened to Jesus. I mean, they were all praising the sermon like, oh, yeah, we love Jesus. Yeah, he's a great rabbi. He's awesome. No, kill him. And, and that's, I mean, that's how quickly it turned. And then it just says, this is how the story ends. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I don't know if that's a miracle. I don't know if he's just his presence was so commanding that he just walked through the crowd. And I don't know if he, you know, some versions say he slipped away. Like the, in the confusion, he kind of slipped away. But that's the, that's the end of the story. And it's like this, it's a weird way um, 
to end the story. But his words were prophetic. Like a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Because he's just the, he's just the carpenter's son. What's he doing telling us how to live his life? I want to go back though to this right here. Because this is the critical part of the, uh, the passage right here. Verses 18 through 21. Okay. Uh, this is Isaiah 61, uh, 1 through 2. And this is a messianic prophecy from Isaiah. And you know that Isaiah is full of messianic prophecies. So we, we love to read the one about the birth of Jesus because that's a messianic prophecy. So uh, Jewish history, they're looking. In the Old Testament, there's the promised Messiah. And they're looking. This is a hotly debated topic at the time. So everybody in the synagogue at that time, everybody in first century Israel is debating the topic of the Messiah. When is the Messiah going to come? How will we know who the Messiah is? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? Those kinds of things. So this is a, this is a hotly debated topic. This is a huge religious debate going on uh, and really a cultural debate going on inside of this. And so this passage of Scripture is revealing what to look for in the Messiah. So if we look at, go back to like what Isaiah is talking about, he says the Messiah will have the Spirit of the Lord on him. Is he, is he be anointed? The word Messiah actually means anointed. So Messiah is a transliterated word uh, from the Hebrew that means the anointed one. And the the translation in Greek is Christos, which means Christ. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, It's, It's a title. Christ is a title. He is Jesus the Christ. We usually shorten that to Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. It is Jesus the Christ. He is Jesus, the anointed one, or Jesus, the Messiah. And part of the reason we believe that is because of things like Isaiah and what Jesus revealed about himself. But he says, here's what the Messiah is going to bring. He's going to bring good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I put that part in brackets. It's not in Scripture. I put that. I just titled that one as grace. Because the Lord, that's referring to the year of jubilee and the year of jubilee every 50 years in israel's history they would have a year of jubilee and in the year of jubilee all the slaves were freed all the debts were forgiven and all the ancestral lands were returned to their ancestors now that's that's pretty amazing the thing and so i I think of that like grace like this and so he's saying when the messiah comes he's going to bring good news freedom and recovery and grace So when we think of Jesus, we think of someone who brings to us good news, not rules and religion, not shame and guilt, someone who brings to us good news, someone who brings to us freedom. So there's a justice component to what uh, the coming of Jesus, because he's he's bringing freedom for the oppressed, freedom for um, those who have been in prison, but also freedom from sin. That's what we talk about. I mean, that's the, the justice demands that we pay the penalty for our sin, but Jesus comes to set us free for that. Jesus takes the payment of penalty for our sins so that we can be set free. He brings recovery and healing, and he also brings grace. And here's what I want you to think about, and I'm going to I'm going to kind of leave you hanging on this sermon, okay? And I apologize on the, on the front end because each one of these builds on the next one. This is all I want us to think about today. Those are the things Jesus brings. Good news, freedom, recovery, and grace. I always like to, when I'm studying Jesus, I like to, to focus on what he brings. But then I also like to ask, how well do we emulate his characteristics? So when you hear those four words... 
how well does the church represent those four words to our society or to our culture? That when people say good news, freedom, recovery, and grace, oh yeah, that's the church. That's what I think of. When I think of church, I think of good news, freedom, recovery, and grace. Or, or how well does religion, let's just talk about organized religion for a minute. How well does organized religion, you guys realize you're a part of organized religion, right? We're, we're organized, we have a time to meet, you know, we got, I mean, we're a part of it. I know that we have bad taste in our mouths about organized religion because it's, you know, I understand that it gets a bad rap, deservedly so. But how, if you think of organized religion, oh yeah, yeah, that's good news, freedom, recovery, and grace. Or Christ followers, let's just personalize this. When people think of us and their interactions with us, how often they do freedom, recovery, good news, grace. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's me. That's what people think of. You know, I think you see the obvious point. The obvious point is that so many times the church doesn't reflect Jesus, religion doesn't reflect Jesus, uh, and we don't reflect Jesus. And if we're not reflecting Jesus, then who needs to change? <laughs> you know, if the church is not reflecting Jesus, then who needs to change? Because it really should, we, we really should be a place of good news. We really should be a place of freedom where people discover freedom and they discover healing. We should be a place of recovery. We should be a place of grace. And, and that's the great challenge for us as we study the life of Jesus. It's, not, it's one thing to just study the life of Jesus and go, oh, that makes me feel good to know that Jesus is like that. That's one thing. But the challenge as disciples of Jesus you realize that if we go back, a rabbi had disciples, and disciples were supposed to emulate the life of the rabbi. They were supposed to follow the teachings of the rabbi and follow their way of life. And so we are disciples of this rabbi, Jesus, who we know is more than a rabbi, but we're to follow after his lifestyle. So the things that Jesus brings with him are the very things that we're supposed to bring with us. And so I want to close by, by praying for that. And uh, then I'll tell you where we're going to go next week. And you can maybe read ahead and be ready for it. So uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Father, I, I do ask that you help us. Uh, because we, are, we realize we're sinful. And our ego gets in the way. Our, our selfishness gets in the way. And uh, sometimes just our negativity and our pessimism gets in the way. So sometimes we're not exactly bearers of good news especially when it comes to spiritual things or morality or any of these things um, we're not we're not always bringing good news and I pray you help us to to bring good news especially for the poor or the oppressed help us to to live out principles of freedom uh, help us to live out principles of recovery help us to live out principles of grace help us to be a people of grace just as as Jesus was grace and we see his grace and his mercy and his justice and help us to to practice grace and mercy and justice in our lives and father most of all we thank you for the example of jesus we thank you that luke recorded this in his gospel and we thank you that matthew and and mark and john were eyewitnesses to it and they recorded it in their gospels and we get the opportunity to read these stories and to learn from these stories and to realize that your son was the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy that he he was and is the anointed one he was and is the messiah and we know that one day he will resurrect us it's in the name of your son jesus i pray these things amen
All right, Matthew 16. I was trying, I paused there at the end of that prayer because I was trying to think of something clever to say about that phone, but I couldn't think of anything. Um, it was like, okay, in the prayer. That's good. Uh, Matthew 16 is where we're going to go next week. So we're going to Caesarea Philippi, and in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus kind of opened the door, not just this cryptic kind of, this scripture's fulfilling your hearing, but I am the Messiah. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means and uh, how that translates to today. So I don't have the exact verse off the top of my head. I, can't, I just know it's in Matthew chapter 16. So read the whole chapter and you'll figure out where I'm going to go, okay? Um, I hope you have a great rest of the day. I believe it's first day of spring or is that tomorrow? Is it today? Okay, it's first day of spring. Go enjoy the rest of spring. Okay, thanks for being here.